You're listening to Method Matters, a podcast about software engineering methods for the modern enterprise. This is your host, Carlos Taborda. Today we have Alan Boucher on the show. I'm very excited about this conversation because Alan has a great breadth of experience when it comes to doing portfolio management. He's actually the director of IT, of software product development, and architecture at IDEX. You can learn more about IDEX at IDEX, I-D-E-X-X dot com and uh, the wonderful work that Alan is doing over there. Today's conversation is going to be around portfolio management, how it differs from project management and uh, different techniques and methods that as engineers we should care about, especially as if you're a, an engineering manager or an actual senior developer or a non-senior developer, you want to understand how work is prioritized by the organization that you work at and why it makes a difference. So anyways, this is going to be a very interesting conversation. We're going to talk about what portfolio management is, how it impacts future budgets and timelines, ROIs, feedback loop, different timelines, promises made, managing expectations, and the everlasting constant change. So with that said, let's get started. Alan, my friend, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a, a couple of weeks coming, so I'm, I'm very excited to finally have you on the show. Hey, Carlos, it's, it's really great to be here, and thank you for having me. I found your profile and sort of the work that you're doing, and it what fascinated me is the breadth of work that you're involved with in terms of just contextually understanding the width of what you guys do as, a, as an organization. Mm-hmm. And we're going to talk about a very interesting topic, which is about this portfolio management. And portfolio management is something that is encompasses not just one area of work, but in your case, it's many throughout different areas of the company. So anyways, long story short, you're going through this currently. And I think it's just a, a timely conversation for the listeners that are planning next year's might get some insights from your lessons learned. And uh, anyways, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, I hope everybody can take away one or two things from our discussion today. That would be great. Yeah. And the way is, is they can take away some sort of method of how you're doing things, right? Absolutely. And that's what the evolution of this podcast has become. In the past, it used to be very biographical. And now it's, it's evolved more into this conversation about a method. So what I'm, so I'm super interested about is talking about this as something actionable that other people can take and learn from from your experience. Because as I said, others are going through the same thing and just hearing it from somebody else who's doing it and looking at your perspective, how it might differ from them is what's what's valuable. Before we get started into the topic, though, I want to make sure that everybody gets to know you and how impressive the work that you're doing is, especially I am alluding to a lot of this uh, with of expertise that you have, this vast amount of, of context that you have to deal with at an organization level. So let's start there. Tell me about yourself and tell me a bit about your career. Where did you come from before you started at IDEX? Sure. So I spent um, the majority of my career at Intel. I started out actually as a technologist in the field, working with directly within customers, solving problems, creating solutions, working with computer OEMs, and lots and lots and lots of different ISVs and operating system vendors to create value for Intel's extended customer base. 
I moved from there onto their networking division and ultimately into their enterprise solutions division, migrated my way over towards healthcare and life sciences. In the early 2000s, that, that was a, a lot of my focus. And then Intel actually created their own healthcare and life sciences division. And I took over both product architecture and product engineering for all of their software products. I did that up until we decided to spin that group out with GE, with a, a private investment, and actually create a startup called Care Innovations. And I was there for three or four years, left Care Innovations, moved back to the East Coast, and took a job with IDEX about three and a half years ago. And I have been basically, I started out in their customer-facing software organization as a director running seven or eight different products uh, development areas. And then I had an opportunity to move over to information technology for a new, a quite innovative core platform for running our reference lab or diagnostic labs globally. It involves lots and lots of integrations across internal systems and external systems. And it's running on commercial cloud. And frankly, a lot of our stuff runs on commercial cloud. And so that was a great opportunity for me to take that and uh, build a team, build an organization, which is what I've done. Tell me a bit about the company. Tell me a bit about, about IDEX. I know that there is, as I mentioned, I keep on repeating, there's tons of things that you guys do from veterinary-oriented practice management software for veterinaries, if I'm not mistaken, to water testing. There's this breadth. Can you give us a, a bit of, of understanding about everything that you guys do in terms of, uh, say, verticals, but then how does that horizontally make sense, right? Cohesively from a horizontal perspective, you guys, all of it is kind of in the same family, if you would. Sure. If you think about companion animal as an industry, and we do every day, people have pets. Farmers and ranchers have poultry, dairy, livestock. We have lots and lots of opportunity to test and maintain water supplies around the world. Everything having to do with really the space around health and wellness of pets and people and the industry as a whole. And, and it's split up across a number of different vertical businesses here at IDEX. There's clearly our diagnostics business, which is shaped in a number of ways. We have our reference lab business, which are greater than 70 labs around the world, basically four geographies that create value in diagnostic testing for our customers. Our customers generally in that space are either larger volume customers who may be ranches and farms, as well as, you know, literally tens of thousands of veterinary practices and hospitals and other facilities that serve as companion animals. This testing is what you might expect. It's urinalysis, it's hematology, PCR and genetics testing, it's uh, cytology and histology and pathology, blood chemistry. And there's a, a lot of things that happen in between the point where you take your pet into for a wellness check or, or sickness check. And those specimens are captured and whether they're run internally in the veterinary office on IDEX instrumentation that we sell through one of our other businesses and it provides more immediate value. It might have that particular veterinarian hospital may also uh, split their diagnostics with both in-house, what we call in-house on instruments uh, that we sell to them, but also send them out to the reference lab. And so we provide not only all of the, the leadership and research and development across uh, chemistry and hematology and other sciences for those, those tests and assays. But also, on the other side of it, we manage the labs and the infrastructure, software infrastructure that runs the labs and all of the master systems, as you might expect, or master data and SAP data, for instance, and 
you know, how do we actually maintain customer master data and test directory master data? And uh, how do we actually do billing and how do we store results and how do we deliver those results through any number of systems back to our customers who are waiting anxiously to deliver the results to their, their pet owners? Frankly, if we're trying to do large herd analysis, say a thousand head of cattle, it's a similar process where you're capturing specimens and actually delivering value back to that rancher and, and the veterinarians that support them. So I think across the business portfolio, we're very well aligned. We're very focused on our business. Every aspect of our business involves software. A lot of that software is fairly complex. A lot of that software runs in the cloud. It also runs on-premise, depending on where it is. And it's our job to make sure we build it with really high quality, uh, minimizing technical debt and, and other detriments to the software asset and delivering it in really high value in a higher reliable fashion. And this is, I think, where portfolio management is as a topic and sort of a, a guide to portfolio management or Alan's guide, right? How, how you are doing it. And uh, tell me a little bit about, about what's going on now. Why is this a timely conversation? Why is this time of the year usually the time that you begin doing this sort of things for the next year? Sure. Well, so, so you know, first off, let's start with the difference between an individual product, a project, and a portfolio, right? So I think organizations mature through that, right? I've worked in startups. Um, I've also worked inside of Intel and, and even here at IDEX where, you know, we've got kind of startup feel to a, a new product line, you know, small teams, lots of versatility, you know, moving very quickly, making decisions, pivoting. All of that is, you know, very focused on just building an MVP or commercially viable product you can get into the marketplace versus a project that says, hey, this probably has phases. We're going to move through a phase one, maybe a phase two, we'll ship it. Then there's a phase three, four, five downstream as we look to improve, make additional investment, perhaps enhance and or expand the product versus a portfolio that says, hey, we have a group of products and a group of needs and capabilities across a business unit. Not only how do we build that in what order and what the priorities are, but how do they interoperate with each other and what dependencies do they have elsewhere in the organization or outside the organization? So when you start to look and make decisions at a portfolio level, you really have to think about how are my resources being best used? What technologies am I choosing, open source or other, right? What technologies am I choosing? Where am I going to land this? How will I deploy it? How will I build and deploy it, right? Lots of companies, including ourselves, can't tolerate massive downtime between upgrades, right? So, you know, how do you build for mutability, right? How do you build as a immutable deployment, right? And how do you have zero downtime, right? So it takes a lot of planning to do that. So when you start to think about keeping the business running and uh, layering in capabilities, need, uh, you know, solving challenges, issues, needs, but also prioritizing those based on your investment, the intended return on investment or optimization in the business or other, you start to shape the way you think about building innovation and assets differently, right? And um, that's really portfolio management. Then there's this concept of, you know, in-flight, uh, which means what development do we have in flight? And then you have to look downstream at your portfolio and say, what are the things we need to be building in what priority? And perhaps your priority changed from last year to this year, right? So the things you thought you were going to be building this year or perhaps next year have some risk to them because other things take precedent. Portfolio isn't a thing that you do once a year. You're constantly shaping it, right? We're looking at the portfolio every quarter. We're saying, are things still relevant? Do we have the right priorities? Do we have the right focus 
as a development organization, but also as a product organization, right? And so that requires us to work really, really closely together. In order to do the plan, you have to have a lot of that deep understanding of, as, as you said, of, of how you're going to deploy. You need to have a lot of that context, right? You, that awareness of the entire periphery of all the projects and how they're going to impact the, the organization. Just to shape this a little bit, what are the typical areas of work? What are the usual bodies of work, right? And uh, just to give you an example, sometimes there's projects that are like architecture projects or specific system that is going to be built like an, a web application. Tell me, what are the, the typical bodies of work that encompass the work that you're doing? Well, so, uh, you know, first and foremost, where we're on market, that's another way to say it might be keeping the lights on, right? Where we're on market, we really need to make sure that we've got the right level of resources in any of the portfolio groups focused on doing a good job for our customers, right? And, and frankly, our internal team who might be leveraging the software that we deliver, right? So it's really, really important that we have a majority of whatever we're doing on a day-in or weekend basis be focused on on market. Then there's new products and innovations, right? In a second, I want to talk about that because we have to figure out, like, how are you measured in terms of performance when usually you're rewarded by the new things, right? But as you said, the most important thing is to keep the lights on. Yeah, the most important thing is to be able to run and maintain and sustain the software that you built, right? I mean, in many cases, lots of companies today, more, more than we would ever imagine, make a long-term investment. It's a multi-year investment, right? So at some point, they may be capitalizing their investment over three to five years, and they they incrementally improve that investment, and perhaps uh, defects come along or enhancement requests from the field, or they built something early on that they'd like to change now, and that's deemed technical debt in one form or another. And we try to discourage a bunch of that, but at the end of the day, it happens in software platforms, right? You make decisions to quickly move to the market, recognizing that hey, I kicked the can down the road on that thing and we're going to have to deal with it later on. So that's technical debt. And so all of that is a part of keeping the lights on and making sure that the software performs the way you intended on market. How do you guys handle things like, big example, let's say you guys were using Flash. Again, this is a, a bad example, but you know what I mean. And then you're thinking of implementing a modern sort of front-end engineering platform, right? You're building your own design system. How does that get implemented in a sense of seeing how creating that will impact rewriting a lot of code in the future? How do you keep a balance between that? Yeah, so I mean, you have to actually look at that and say, there's a difference between technical debt and, say, technical investment. So let me, let me kind of clarify that a little bit, because you may be on an older technology where you've got to have some portion of the team in place that can support that older technology, right? But at some point, you're going to make a decision that says the pain of maintaining that older technology is greater than us pivoting into a rewrite, perhaps a refactoring, perhaps, a, frankly, an entire refitalization. Maybe you want to move something that's running as, a, say, a swing client on-premise to a more spring boot, you know, global pub sub, say, an Angular front end with some data service uh, in a commercial cloud environment. Or you want to do something that's React and Node-based, right, with maybe Mongo as a database. All of these types of things, you know, you're, you've got to pivot into that, right? That's a new investment. That's a technical investment that could take the place of, hey, moving from on-premise infrastructure to cloud, you've got a whole security wrapper and layer that has to be implemented there. You've got to do penetration testing. You've got to rewrite the software entirely on the front end and the back end. You're going to move to a new data service. All of that is a big technical investment, right? But in the meantime, you have to maintain what's on market until you can make that migration and make that switch. 
And so you've got to be able to balance that and say, okay, at what point do I turn down the dial on developing what's on market and just sustain it so that I can redirect the team or acquire new resources to actually do the new work? So if we think of, of the way that you prioritize this, I'm sure ROI is a big factor. And as you were mentioning at the beginning is there's an ROI analysis. Tell me a little bit about that. What types of ROI exist and how do you come to those? Well, so at the end of the day, I mean, it depends who you're talking to. If you're talking to a financial team, it's really a financial ROI. It's, it's like, what and when is my return on investment? What is my net present value? When does my contribution margin target actually, when is it achieved? When is it reached? You know, there's a bunch of different things that take the shape around the financial investment itself. And, you know, what is our depreciation target? At what point are we fully depreciated if we did nothing more at some point or we had a minimal investment once we built the platform? And we all know platforms aren't perfect <laughs> ever. You know, software's never done. But at some point, you know, there's there's a measurable point in the product lifecycle where you actually have an ROI target and have you have you achieved it or have you not achieved it? But there's a whole bunch of others, right? So you might have, if I'm building a SaaS platform that's facing a customer base, what I may be doing is I may be looking at both non-functionals, things like scalability, you know, reliability. Uh, sustainability, uptime, those kinds of things, right? Which are kind of non-functionals, but they're important to the customers, right? The other thing might be net promoter score. I might be looking at a customer and saying, look, I'm going to deliver more features. I'm going to deliver better quality. I'm going to deliver on a faster platform, better software. I might want to wrap that in a measurement that is a net promoter score or a net customer value score and be targeting improvements in that. Ultimately, I might be building software that improves the operational efficiency in the company itself, right? So it could be a commercial platform you acquire that enables your sales teams and your marketing teams and your service teams to be able to service our customers faster and better, right? With more visibility into both the data around the customer, right? Data around the market and what are the things they might need to be doing versus operationally in a lab or a factory side of the business where I might want to make a number of improvements in the software that actually reduce the need for some level of redundancy on the line because the software actually does more, you know, the old software where I had to have more more employees actually doing the work, right? So it's really an optimization discussion on the line, on the manufacturing line or the production line that the software is trying to improve, right? So all of these are different forms of return on investment. It really depends on the portfolio and the business and what they're trying to do. If they're trying to improve their contribution margin, that's a target and the portfolio takes a certain shape. If you're trying to improve your efficiency in you know, processing or in the lab or in, in a factory, that's a different shape. You're listening to Method Matters, conversations on software engineering methods for the modern enterprise. Your host is Carlos Taborda from Gistia, a software engineering consultancy helping enterprise clients solve complex business and technology problems. I have an interesting topic to kind of add this to, and it's the budget conversation in in turn with ROI, in the sense of how do we set expectations of ROI in relation to also how do you make budget decisions ahead of time before having requirements for a project, right? You're still making a promise on ROI, or not a promise, but you're just trying to set an expectation around ROI, but at the same time, you're making an educated guess at some point about the budget. How, how do you keep those two things in balance? Yeah, I mean, it's, 
it's complex, right, Carlos? It really is complex because you have to look at a number of factors. How large is the body of work, right? How many teams are going to be required to do that body of work? Is it a single team? My scrum teams tend to be three or four developers, a scrum master. We do a lot of CICD here, uh, continuous integration, continuous delivery. We do a lot of test automation in many of the teams, both customer facing and uh, now in IT. And so we're migrating more towards different forms of agile, but you know, the teams are fairly tight and we can measure them, you know, pretty finely, right? So we understand kind of in the case of, you know, pure scrum, we're looking at capacity and velocity, burn up, burn down. In the case of Kanban, we're looking at, you know, polls and cycle time and continuous flow and, and a number of other things to measure throughput. And velocity and throughput, by the way, for your audience, in my experience, I, you know, velocity is a classic example where if a business partner or someone on the business side actually gets a hold of velocity, they start measuring their investment and their project timelines or portfolio timelines across multi-years based on that velocity. And that's a dangerous thing, right? Because velocity is an internal development team measurement. It's not an external measurement. And so velocity is important because it's a measurement of the team and how the team is performing right now. And right now is a, is a window of probably back a couple of sprints, or if you're just doing continuous delivery, you really don't have sprints. You're, you're operating a slightly different model. But basically, it's what happened in the near term, both previously and what do we expect in the near term in the future. And so I, I just I want to be cautioning people around that. Velocity is something that should be held tightly by the development organization. But ultimately, when you're trying to figure out a portfolio on a program that's especially multi-year, and we have a lot of these, where they're in phases over multi-year, and it's just a continuous stream of development, a lot of it is experience-based. What are we building? Do we have predicates in the, in the environment that we have built that are similar to those, right? If we do, for instance, do we have any way to measure the difficulty of feature implementations previously? What is the overall value of those features, right, in the equation? And, you know, how do we measure that value? What throughput from these teams on that previous program, what was the throughput? And what is that throughput? Can we actually use that as a marker or a benchmark to actually or a baseline to go forward on, on this new program? So part of it is actually experience-based, right? If we've done this before, great. If not, then what we have to do is we have to rely on looking and, and breaking down. We happen to use... A number of different processes when we break down designs, we don't do designs up front. What we will do is block out a design. We'll use storyboards and block the design out as best we can. And then we will make assumptions on the body of work in each one of those blocks. And that's where we start, right? Recognizing that I don't have a crystal ball and nobody has a crystal ball. What we can do is we can do enough of the backlog up front, even if it's Kanban, so that we understand what it is we're going to build over, say, the next three or four months. And we might have a delivery phase that's a year out. And so what we have to do is we have to take our best guesstimate at hitting that year out date with the features and the needs of the business and ultimately the portfolio. But if you're asking me to project out three years, I can do that. But it's really a discussion of precision without accuracy. Right. And that's a dangerous place to be. The longer that that has to be, the more you're relying really on on orders of magnitude versus specific like dollar amount. because. Dollar amount usually equals hours specifically or, or specific days. Here you're talking more about ranges. And again, orders of magnitude is, is the way I think about these at this level, at least. Absolutely. We just went through that exercise. Uh, you know, I have a product that we're building that's really, really complex. It's, it's basically a transaction engine at its core, but it integrates with 
instrumentation that you know runs our, our diagnostic labs. But on the front side of it and the back side of it are a number of commercial systems and internal systems that are built that master the data in and out of that system. And some of that we've done before, right? And some of those systems already exist. So it's a matter of what is the level of effort to integrate this new platform, this new portfolio platform to that thing that exists. Uh, there are other cases where we're building new platforms to associate with this core transaction platform. And so we've got to manage those plus also the integration between them. And so some things you feel very, very sure about and other things are much greater, right? What you have to do is you have to maintain a risk matrix along with your program, your portfolio program that says, hey, here are the identifiable risks. And if you're using something like an ALARP where you're measuring kind of you know, zero through five on the risk, five being the highest, what you say is, hey, I'm going to measure this. It's a four and we're going to work this risk down as we go over time. And we believe that we'll get it down to a one or a zero. What you're trying to do is work through your risks, identify them early, manage for the mitigation, you know, work your way through your development cycle and deliver. And so that for me is, it's really tough. Nobody is ever going to stand on this podcast and say, I have the answer to a three program, right? It's just not going to happen. Yeah, it's a lot of, of uh, assumptions that are set forth, I think. And of course, you try to use different techniques or as we call them methods to try to to be within a certain error percentage or within a certain acceptable room. But it's why it's impossible to do, us as an organization, for example, to do fixed estimates or fixed estimates ever. There's always a sense of we work in an agile way and even our business runs in an agile way when it comes down to like invoicing, for example. Absolutely. You know, I get this all the time from executives, business side executives. It's like, well, I have eight or nine platforms in a portfolio and every team seems to have a different one point is a different value for every team. And what you have to look at is what are the technologies the team is using? What is the shape and experience of the team that's doing the work? How long has the platform been out there so that the team has a really good idea of, hey, all these other things we built were a three or were an eight or were a 13, right? So therefore, we feel really confident that this too is a 13. Once again, it gets back down to experience base and it gets down to the, the software that came before it. And you know how do you actually build confidence into your estimate and build, more importantly, building confidence into your estimate over time. Yeah. And as you mentioned, though, there's something to be said about keeping the business in the loop. That's, I think, the biggest things that you have to do. Because unless we stay close to projects, things can go bad quickly. And I know that you depend on a group of project managers, but how do you personally keep your finger on the pulse of all these programs that are going on at the same time without overwhelming yourself and not doing everything else you have to do? How? What methods do you personally use to do that? Well, as you might imagine, I'm not a bashful guy and I, I talk a lot. And it works well for me here at IDEX because one of the values of IDEX is bringing people along. And bringing people along means really being truthful and honest about where you are in a program, what you need, what's happening, how's it going, you know, are we meeting our commitments, are we not going to meet our commitments, right? It's about truth and transparency. We have lots of opportunity for that. I spend probably a third of my week talking to my business partners, my product partners, my engineering leads to make sure that we understand where we're doing well and celebrate that and you know, make sure the business unit is aware of it and where we have problems equally understand those and make sure the business unit is aware of it. I have a philosophy and you and I talked about it earlier, which was I actually believe my development teams, I have a set of desks in every single development area that is where my product teams sit. To me, when I'm running an agile team or a, some derivative of that or Kanban, it doesn't matter. If I have a 
BA, business analyst, and a product owner or multiple BAs and a product owner from the business team, they're going to sit with my engineering team. I want them in every design discussion. I want them in every stand-up. I want them to be a part of what it is we're doing. We win and we lose together. Yeah, they need to breathe the same air, have the same coffee. Yeah, absolutely. And so that's really, really important to me. So when we actually do go to, at IDEX, we have a lot of steer codes. At Intel, it used to be something called MRCs, but we have steering committees, right? And steering committees are really where the top-level leadership team gets an update, right? And those those tend to happen every three or four weeks. And you know, we'll sit down, and there's a format we use, and we kind of go through what our commitments are. Where are we now? What's new? Let's show them a demo. Let's talk about financials if we need to talk about financials. And that's a formal way to bring people along, but it's also a place to have those difficult discussions if we need to have a difficult discussion. In terms of keeping the business aware or up to date, I would imagine that the things that the business cares is how are you monitoring that ROI and how it's progressing along the, say, the year and your projections, how close or how far are they? And also how often do they need to know what sort of check-in do you do? How does that work? Yeah, so it's a good question. So we have a strategic operating model here where we're looking five years out, right? So every year we look five years out. And I know there's a lot of folks who will listen to this podcast and say, well, you know, there's a number of companies out there that don't bother with strategic plans anymore. And if you plan a year from now, it's a waste. Not if you're a larger company, right? Larger companies have shareholder responsibility, board responsibility, employee responsibility, employees, families, right? I mean, one of the things we're looking at is what does the shape of our business look like and what are the systems we need to be building in our portfolio, you know, three to five years from now? We need to be directionally diligent, but not necessarily directionally correct, you know, and when we're out in years four and five. I mean, you have to have an opinion. I've always subscribed to your software and your product has to have an opinion. I believe your strategy has to have an opinion, right? So one of the things we're always looking at is how does the portfolio take shape? And therefore, what does the investment look like in, around that portfolio? That investment actually drives a number of decisions about what are the things we should be building, what platforms that are under development today get carried forward versus, hey, we're going to finish it here and then we will move to a different development model on that platform and bring this other platform target up. And so you have to be constantly having those decisions because the business changes too quickly. If we look back 15 years ago, and I recognize that's hard for some in your audience, you, you might not have been doing this 15 years ago, but you look back 15 years ago, it was you know, perfectly rational. You could stay on target with your business for a year, a half, two years sometimes with the things you were building. You didn't have to necessarily adjust. Well, that's, that's much different today, right? I mean, we've got lots of competitors, lots of customer needs lots of cross-industry needs that, that are coming at us, right? New vendors, new capabilities, new technologies. And you need to evaluate those and figure out how do they enhance the decisions you're making? How do they perhaps change the decisions you're making? And how do they influence you in the long term? That's the, the constant thing about today's sort of business is there's constant change, right? And that's why we have the sort of techniques that we do in order to be able to mitigate change, but not necessarily have to go back to the drawing board every week. Otherwise, we'll go nuts. Absolutely. What you have to do is make your decisions going forward. Yeah. Just like you fail forward. You know, if you have a bad release and you find a defect, what you do is you fix it quickly, you test it, and get it out the door, right? The whole concept is progress, right? You should be in a progress forward mode with the way you're thinking about engineering, the way you're thinking about innovation, the way you're, you're treating your on-market products, your new product development, your technical debt even, and really the decisions you're making at a business and funding level to support those. I would assume that you've got 
some, let's say, good luck in the sense that not all business side of the companies understand technology as maybe you guys do. And so in your case, again, having this good relationship, it's, I don't want to say easy, but it's, it's a manageable situation when changes come into play. And all of a sudden, here comes Alan and he needs to expand his budget. How does that happen, right? And, and how do you mitigate that currently? How does that work with Nidex? And how would it work if, if the business wasn't so understanding and if it was seen as a, as a negative thing on your end, right? A lot of people would be afraid of doing that. Sure. So it's a good question. So first off, that's not always the case, right? I mean, what happens is, you know, we're working within a budget, an annual budget, just like everybody else is. And if your budget has been targeted against your portfolio and, and you've got agreement with all the technical leadership uh, teams and also the, the business teams and the product teams, um, you're marching to a commitment. And those commitments have hard commitments both inside the company and outside the company and a set of expectations. Along that, there may be things that arise throughout the year, and they do, where there are new needs to come up that we have to address, right, in one form or another. Uh, it could be a compliance thing. It could be a, a GDPR thing from Europe, right? Recently, that I know a number of the folks on, on your podcast will uh, appreciate because they've just gone through it as well. You know, that's not something you necessarily planned for, right? <laughs> Maybe you did to some extent, but then you realized, hey, the final cut of the GDPR dates and the expectations on companies to comply forced us to redirect our investment and or add to our investment, you know, change things. And I'm not saying it did here or not, but, but it, it's those kinds of things. It could be that. It could be things you need to do in your network because your volume has just increased. You know, the, the number of order and throughputs in the system has increased to a level where you need to change infrastructure. There, there's all kinds of different things. You, you had a product that hit the market and it's wildly successful and it's, your volume increase and you need to actually deliver a whole bunch of new features and deliver it in a new way and perhaps integrate with other third parties. And so how do we make that investment based on the, the current envelope that we have and the current investment uh, targets we've committed to, right? And so you have to have those hard decisions. Do you try to fit it into the investment strategy you already have and make some changes? Or do you write a business case for it to the business team and our product partners and engineering puts together uh, cost estimates for that investment and what we can build in what kind of time frame? And that goes before the business to make a decision, right? And frankly, both of those happen, right? I don't care what company you're at. Uh, you know, that's the shape of product development. As we near here the, the end of our conversation, it's intriguing the thought process that, uh, that an engineering leader such as yourself has to go through, not only as in, in terms of actions that you have to perform, but also how you have to influence others, how you have to work with others. I say influence in, in a benign way, in a good way. Um, but but you have to definitely have that leadership role in order to 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 impact change in the in the organization. And I I'm thankful for being so open and, and sharing some of these thoughts with, with us. I have uh, three last questions for you before we get into those three, just to do a bit of a sum up of what we discussed. So we talked about what portfolio management is, why it's important, and how you guys do it. We talked about how it impacts future budgets and timelines and how you guys do it, right? We know that we cannot promise. We don't have a crystal ball. We can't promise things to us to the minute, but we, we got enough experience in order to, to tell about orders of magnitude of time based on the teams and our own past lessons. How ROI plays a role, how we keep in touch with the feedback loop from the teams that are working so that we can keep the business basically knowing what's going on because they want to know how their investments are, are doing. Timelines, promises made, managing expectations, and 
the most important thing, the thing that the actual constant in life is change. We were able to hit those a lot, a lot of that, that uh, those topics today. So here's the last three questions I have for you. So we're talking about portfolio management for for next year. This is we're recording this at the end of 2018, end of Q3, I think. Yeah, can't have Q3 or okay. beginning of Q4. What can you tell us about 2019 for you at at, at IDEX that is possible for for you to talk about at a high level? Any fun overall projects or or initiatives? Yeah, so I think. Uh, I can't get into specific projects, but I will tell you that IDEX is a global company. And like any other global company, as we move into new markets and looking to create value and bring up facilities and we just expand our footprint, as you might imagine, there's a lot of demands on information technology and the other engineering organizations to make all that possible, right? And so there's always seems to be more work to do than time, resources, or or investment to do it, right? So that's a good problem to have, by the way. We, we always say that to ourselves. We're blessed that it's a good problem to have. So we are, are constantly looking at our portfolio. On a, in fact, we do it on a monthly basis internally here in IT to make sure we've got the right shape to things, right? And that we're, we're watching the things that are important. We are making sure that we're moving resources around to optimize our commitments to the rest of IDEX. And I think that is just absolutely critical to our success long-term. And so. Next year is no different. And frankly, the years after that don't appear to be different either. So I, I think, once again, we feel blessed. We're healthy. Everybody's working hard. And we are building a strong, uh, a strong business for our employees and our shareholders. With that, of course, I'm sure there's, there's a ton of growth uh, that is required in order to keep that pace going. How can people find you, find IDEX, and what sort of, of profile of, say, engineers are you guys looking for? Say a little bit more about, about that, Carlos. So just trying to get an idea of if people that are listening to the show might be interested in, in learning more about IDEX and the work that you're doing, what sort of, of backgrounds are you guys looking for in the future for hiring? Question is, are you hiring? And if you are, how can people get in touch and you know who are the right type of people? So the answer is yes. I mean, they're always looking for critical skills in different areas. Maine, which is where we're headquartered, and it's a, it's a beautiful place to live. We call it vacation land. And it's, it's absolutely a four-season location, so I should tell your, your folks that right now. We have teams all over the world, engineering teams all over the world. And we don't require people to live in Maine, um, although we welcome them to. We have teams that are working on commercial platforms, all the major platforms out there that you might expect for you know, Salesforce management and you know, Marketing Cloud and those kinds of things, SAP. But we also do a lot of internal development. A lot of it is open source based. We're also Microsoft-focused and, and a bunch of stuff as well. and we. As you might imagine, and we are in, uh, we are a heterogeneous cloud customer, right? So we're in actually several different clouds with our platforms. So a lot of the stuff we do is, as I said earlier, is uh, a lot of the custom work is Java based primarily, but we, we do JavaScript or JavaScript derivative uh, front ends in many cases. We use every possible SQL, NoSQL platform. Uh, we are doing lots and lots of data science and data engineering. So I think uh, all in all, there's always jobs posted on IDEX's website. There's a technology page off the website. Uh, there's a recruiting page and careers page. And I, I highly encourage people to go and look at the jobs that are available and where they are. Um, we also have teams that are spread out around the world. So I might have a development team here where half of the team is here, but half of the team is, is spread out in, in other locations. So while we enjoy co-location, of teams when we can. The reality is it's not always important, right? 
you have any any books or resources that you you might want to share with us or that might be relative to your experience as an engineering leader or even to the conversation we had today? Lately I've been I've been working on different process and business books related to portfolio, but I, I think one of the ones that I think is quite interesting, I'm just gonna bring up the offer real quick because I think her book is called Accelerate. And I want to make sure I get her name right. I feel like it's Joanna Rolfen, Rolfton. She wrote a book called Accelerate. That book is, is really interesting because it talks about the way software engineering is really being shaped differently in an agile model, right? So it's really about not just the, the structure of agile and the ceremonies, but really how you look at CICD delivery, how you look at uh, pipelines, uh, how do you bring in not just test-driven development, behavior-driven development. And, and by the way, there are excellent books on behavior-driven development if your audience hasn't read that. I think what we're really trying to do as an industry now is change the way that we structure teams, the way we value quality inside of the development processes and not just a separate entity. So, you know, throw it over the wall and have QA, do the automation, do verification and validation of the software and the design, do performance testing outside of the team. All of that is now being brought in as a part of the development process, right? It's, it's embedded with the engineering organization. And it really talks about that. The other thing I, I would highly recommend, Eric Evans has a book called Domain Driven Design, which is a wonderful book that focuses on really how do you build value domains in your software uh, by creating bounded context and bounded context relationships between component layers in your software. So for instance, if you have a software that does orders, and then that software moves from orders into, say, some validation sequence or processing sequence and ends up with being sent back to the customer as a result. Those are interrelated, but they're completely separate bounded contexts. And how do you actually design and shape your software to allow you to build things more efficiently and faster because you're not overlapping uh, integrations and, and really requirements on uh, on those domains, right? So it's a really interesting model. I, I highly recommend reading that book. So, you know, I think we're in a really interesting time, right? Very much still computer science-based, data science-based, lots of data analytics going on, lots of companies trying to figure out how they shape their data to not only influence their business decisions, but also drive their sales teams in a more efficient manner. So a lot of that going on. It's a really exciting time to be in product development. In, in, in terms of books, right, I'm an avid reader, but I, I read maybe a, a book or sometimes two a week. It's not an effort of reading books. And usually they're business-related books, uh, nonfiction usually. But yeah, we live in an, in an age that you can find information about anything. And it, just be amongst people that, are, that have different thoughts than you and just be able to learn from other people, even if you've never met the person. So we'll have those books on the show notes. Thank you for sharing those. Alan, you know, this is the end of, the, of our show, but I want to thank you so much for coming on the show, for accepting my invitation. I know it came out out of left field, out of nowhere. And uh, you were kind enough to, to share all these insights about portfolio management and, and some of your own experience, some of the stuff that you're working on through right now for 2019. So anyways, I want to thank you for the wonderful conversation today. And thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me, Carlos. And I, for those folks, uh, by the way, just as an adder, on the Accelerate book, I misspoke on the author. It's Nicole Forsgren and Just Humble and Gene Kim. And so I just wanted to make sure that people looking for that book, that is in fact the book uh, that uh, I find very intriguing. So. Perfect. We'll have that on the show notes. Great. All right, Alan. Thank you so much. And I look forward to to hopefully having you on the show in the future again. Um, 
or and this is uh something for everybody listening. We're planning on some future panels with uh, previously interviewed guests. So it might be interesting to have a conversation with you in the future. Maybe we bring another guest and talk about a similar topic or different topics. Just kind of uh, have a different point of views with the, with the same topic. Right. Right. Thank you. Well, Alan, once again, thank you so much for being on the show. 